For those of you who enjoy getting outside and exploring, skiing, snowboarding, hiking, camping, or any other occasion where you may wear technical outerwear, you'll know accidents can happen when you use your gear. For example, you may fall and clip a branch when hauling down an amazing tree run with fresh powder, or perhaps a more humbling experience where you may just trip and fall on a routine hike, resulting in a small rip in your favorite jacket. It happens. And that small rip may not be on a seam where it would otherwise be an easy fix for most tailors and or anyone that knows what they're doing with a sewing machine. The real kickers are when they occur in the middle of a jacket panel, often leading people to throw away their jacket only for it to wind up in a landfill. That's where the standard H no-sew patches come in. Rather than tossing that amazing and most likely not cheap jacket, why not patch it? Now available are shift logo patches done in partnership with no-sew patches based in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which are two-inch adhesive patches that will go over those tears and abrasions of your beloved nylon material protecting you from the elements. If you're not an outdoor person, you're in luck because these can also serve as a cool textured sticker on many other surfaces. Now go out there and explore and take one of these patches with you just in case. I also wanted to let you guys know if you're not already a Paddock member of Standard H, then I would strongly encourage you to jump on the website and join the email list. A couple of deals exclusive to Paddock members are on the horizon, so I would definitely not miss out. If you visit standard-h.com, you can sign up there to become a Paddock member, and throughout the year, you're going to receive information and deals that no one else receives. Again, standard-h.com, sign up to become a Paddock member, and you'll also get 15% off your entire first order. Now let's get to the show. Ashley Reed has been a good friend of mine since I moved to California in 2007. In fact, we moved within several weeks of one another. I moved from Raleigh, whereas she moved from New York City and shared an apartment with former Standard H podcast guest Jensen Reed, who happens to be her brother. We all became fast friends, and the past 14 plus years have been an amazing ride for Ashley. She's one of the smartest, most articulate people I know. She's had one heck of a career working her way up through some of the largest players in their respective spaces. I'm talking about companies like the NBA, Major League Soccer, iHeartMedia, and then a little company called Amazon. She speaks multiple languages, has traveled all over the world, and most recently, Ashley launched her business focused on transformational teaching, focused on high performers. I love what she's doing, which a major component involves turning your needs into your wants to get better, feel better, and be a better you. Check it out. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, this is this is one of the more interesting episodes, I think, because you're the first sister I've inter- or sibling, I guess I should say, that I've interviewed based on previous guests. I love it. And it works well because my brother's older. I follow him and everything. So right. It's perfect that you had him first and then I'm coming on. That certainly wasn't <laughs> like cognizant of me. But I have interviewed a couple, a husband and wife at the same time, but not siblings. So. Standard Age podcast first. <laughs> Love it. Love um, being the first. But for those who didn't listen to my episode with Jensen, talk to me about your parents. Oh, my parents are amazing. Um, my mom's actually visiting today, which is very fun timing. Um, they've been married for 50 years, met in college. Um, yeah, we had a, a beautiful upbringing. I feel very lucky. Yeah. Now, what did your... I, actually, I might need reminding... Your dad was a football coach. He was a football coach. And it's for, a major university. Yeah, he did. So he coached for around 25 years. Um, about half of it was before my brother and I were around and half was after. Um, but the main place he was at when we were around and also before because he was there twice was at Michigan. Right. So it was a really fun level of D1 football to be involved in. Yeah. You know, we would spend our weekends going to games, getting all bundled up, just really fun bonding experiences. Um, and obviously turned me into a huge sports fan. Right. Yeah, naturally. The the reminder I needed is what your mom did. Yeah. So my mom was a teacher forever. That's right. Okay. And then when my brother and I were born, she actually stepped away from teaching and became a full-time mom taking care of us. Got it. So I would like to say she had the hardest job. <laughs> yeah. Humanly possible being a stay-at-home mom. Um, but yeah, she did, she did an amazing job with it. 
Sweet. So you guys moved to Cary, North Carolina from Michigan. We did. Yeah. So we actually lived in Cary once before when we were young. My dad was head coach at North Carolina State. And then we moved up to Michigan. And as my dad was getting to the end of his career after about 25 years, it's a tough it's a tough, um, tough career, tough job, just yeah. in terms of stress and time. And he wanted more time with the family. So he ended up retiring uh, right before I was 13. And he loved North Carolina. He loved the weather, which my brother and I rebelled against. Like, you're moving us for the weather. <laughs> As right. young kids, we didn't understand it at the time. Yeah. But I do now. And, you know, it's a great quality of life for a family. So we moved back to Cary. Sweet. Yeah. So what was your first car? Oh my goodness. I know you know the answer to these and that's why you're asking because they were very entertaining. So my parents firmly believed in, I would call it character building. <laughs> um, you know, we, we lived in an area where a lot of people, like a lot of kids had these nice new cars and everything. And when my brother and I were turning 16, they decided that, you know, driving a car should be something you kind of earn. And so we were lucky if we drove anything. So the first car we had was called a Ford Ranchero. Yep. Um, I like to call it the part car, part truck. Um, a lot of people know the El Camino, which is similar. So we had a ranchero that was my grandpa's, and we would drive that to school, which was hysterical. And then they got this, I don't even remember what it's called. It was like an old police car that had the um, Lincoln something, had half vinyl on the top of the car. Okay. It was like this huge maroon thing so that was our other option that we could drive and then a huge van like not a minivan like a huge like a 15 passenger van yeah humongous van wait why did you guys own a van well because we would do trips back to north carolina or sorry back to um ohio where our family is from we would drive up there and so we got a van and would do family trips driving up to visit my grandparents and everything but then it just became that those were the cars we had to drive one of them to school (laughs) i can't imagine driving a van i don't think jay uh, I don't think he, he released that this one information. In. No, I mean, the first two were the main ones, but the van, the van was also impactful. <laughs> the hashtag van life, yeah. 30 years was, in advance. It was pretty funny. You I, guys are ahead of the curve. All of the cars were, you know, seemed like they were for someone 70 plus years old. So as you would go through the parking lot, it was like, which one of these does not belong in a high school parking lot? It was pretty funny. That's so good. If you had to sort of summarize your high school life through music, what couple of albums would you choose? Through music, that's a tough one. Um, my brother is my brother is much better with names of music. I love music. Um, definitely Biggie. I feel like that was always in the background of everything we were doing. Um, yeah. So whenever I hear those songs, it takes me back to like our spring breaks and just time with friends in the car. Um, that's how the Fugees is for me. Oh, Fugees too. Honestly, I hear that and I go back to, the I mean, score. I think, yeah, they say music and smells are, are the most intense in terms of bringing you to past memories. Right. And it's so true. A song comes on and you're all of a sudden like transported to when you were listening to it all the time. Fugees is another huge one. You're right. Um, Alanis Morissette. Yeah. Went through that phase where I loved her on Was repeat. Jagged, Jagged Little, Little Pill. Pill. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I loved it. I rebelled against country, which I actually like some country now. But when we moved to North Carolina, I just I didn't want to fit in because I didn't want to move. And so everything southern country, you know, I, I rebelled against. But I do appreciate the storytelling and like the, the emotion behind country now. Right. Um, yeah, I was kind of the same way. And I grew I was born and raised in North yeah. Carolina. You I just never gravitated from? to, to no. country at all. Just, it just wasn't me. I don't yeah. know why. What was your go-to? I was more into like pop, hip-hop, and like back then kind of punk. Yeah, same here. I went through a big like Nirvana, Pearl Jam phase too. I kind of, I think in those times you're sort of finding your way with everything, music included. Totally. I think it's good to just listen to all of it and then you end up sticking with what you know you really like. Yeah. Um, I was always a fan of good drummers. Oh, yeah. So pretty that. much if the band had a good drummer. You liked him? I, yeah. Yeah, Def Leppard. Yeah, well, drummer one because arm, I know, yeah, one arm. So, but so impressive. I think it was a Corvette accident. Yeah. I think that's how he lost his arm, I think. Oh, man. So you went to UNC. I did. As did Jay. So yes. it's 
to your point earlier. Yeah, right. You know, following it's a, suit. it was a healthy following. I think though the good thing was, you know, I think when you're growing up, my brother and I are 18 months apart. So there were times when we were younger where we didn't fully click. But as we got older, like late high school and college where, you know, we just started to have more in common and we're more mature. Right. We were super close. So I felt I felt OK following him around. No, I didn't <laughs> ask him this, though. What? How did your parents feel about Carolina giving he coached at State? So good, actually. You know, State was a little bit of a short stint. And, um, you know, at the time, there were some challenges there. So there wasn't that emotional connection There's like there was with other yeah. programs. Yeah, so it was it was actually kind of fun. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. What did you major in? I majored in organizational communications, which um, translates to not knowing at all what you want to do with your life. <laughs> I did that, and then I minored in Spanish. I'm a huge language geek. Um, but with with communications, it was just kind of that broad one where I didn't know what I wanted to do, and everyone said, if you don't know, do something like communications. And then I added in the organizational in case I wanted to do something. I was always intrigued by like um, how companies worked, so consulting was in the back of my head. Mm. So I figured that was a good mix of stuff. But yeah, I had no no path. So the broader, the better in college. <laughs> right. So what I remember, because you and I graduated the same year, I think. Yep. Or were you a year ahead of me? I was O two. Yes. Yeah, we were the same. Yeah, year. we were the same year. So it was interesting because at the time it was like the dot com crash was sort of happening. Yeah. Or on the heels of it anyway. Um, no, we were in the thick of it. It was right after September eleventh. Yeah. So. My point in bringing it up was like job availability. I found graduating from NC State, it was almost like null and void unless you were so specified. Like yeah. if you were an electrical engineer or an industrial engineer or, you know, et cetera, like you could find a job. Whereas like for me, I majored in business because like you, I was like, I didn't know what I wanted to right. do. And I was thinking, oh, well, this is great. This will be versatile, which it turned out to be, you know, kind of a kick in the pants because it was like it's not specific enough so yeah. did you what was like the job search yeah like for it was you? a tough tough time so I actually was really close to a job with coke an entry-level job with in Atlanta um, in Atlanta and um I think I would have gotten it we were right at the the final stages of it I don't know if it was myself and one other person or what it was but then they same thing they went on a hiring freeze which happened with a lot of companies so September 11th happened and then by spring the the fallout economically was starting to set in and companies were trying to decide how to navigate loss right and so they went on a hiring freeze and cut the job um but honestly one of the best things that ever happened to me because i took the money that i had and i moved i studied abroad in spain the first semester of my senior year i was okay. actually in spain during september 11th oh, wow. and most people came back but i just i decided to stay it felt right to experience the world through other people's eyes also sure. um so when I ended up not getting the Coke job or it got cut, I moved back over to Spain until I ran out of money. And it was such an amazing experience. You know, life happens. Obviously, by no means do I wish anything happened that happened that year. But in terms of the way it changed my path, right. it was really impactful. Yeah. Were you in Madrid or where? I was in Sevilla in southern okay. Spain. Cool. Loved it. It's such a cool mix of still city-ish. You could walk around to everything. There was a lot to do, but it was kind of a southern closed culture, which I really appreciate because when you're learning a language and, and a culture, it feels almost more gratifying when it takes some time to unlock it. Right. So when I was there the first time, I was around a lot of English speakers and didn't fully learn Spanish and it was very confusing and difficult. And then when I went back, um, my friend and I both went back and other than us, everyone only spoke Spanish, our friends. And so we, a lot more immersive. Exactly. So learned the language and that's when you kind of unlock the key to a culture when you can live in it through that language, which was just an absolutely amazing experience. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So what ended up being your first job then? So I came back. Well, <laughs> technically my first job was with Abercrombie. Okay, um, was that in high school? That was it. No, that was after I came back from Spain. Okay, so did I, you work in high school at all? Uh, yeah, in high school I worked. Um, I was a waitress at Pizza Hut when I was 16. Pizza Hut? Yeah, my parents were all about. So I played soccer and basketball, and I got a little burnt out. And I wanted to take a year off of soccer because I had been playing really competitively. And they said, well, you can take a year off, but then you have to get a job. So I took the time off, worked at Pizza Hut waitressing actually made some good money they had this buffet thing where really all you had to do was shell out the drinks and, yeah. and pick up the tips 
Um, but then I realized quickly sports was a better, <laughs> better path for high school and went back to playing. Okay. Side <laughs> note, what's your favorite pizza on the planet? Oh my gosh. I Domino's. Everyone who knows really? me knows that. And every New Yorker, I, I live in New York and my friends all want to kill me when I say that Domino's with ranch dressing. Oh it's, my yeah. God. Hot take. <laughs> There'll be a lot it. of judgment around that, but I'm okay with it. I like to own my Domino's. What's your crust? <laughs> I like the, um, well, I like the thin one's a little healthier, but if I just want the pizza, I like the, the middle one. And then mushrooms and jalapenos. So okay, yummy. a little spice. Right? Offset the spice ranch. Yeah. Oh my God, <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, Domino's, for those listening, is, is the yeah. Best pizza okay. ever. Ever. <laughs> According to Ashley. <laughs> Man, that's awesome. <laughs> All right. So your first job was Abercrombie. Yeah. So, so you got in the retail game. I did. I mean, I, just kind of by a why not a friend that was amazing. Um, Holly, who, you know, I didn't want to leave Spain, but my visa was coming to an end and I couldn't find anyone to hire me illegally. <laughs> so I had to leave the country. Right. And I came back and I just didn't really know what I wanted to do yet still. So, um, I moved back home with my parents while I was figuring it out and I was honestly a little depressed, not clinically, but just kind of down no, because totally. I yeah. had this crazy experience and all of a sudden I'm back and don't know what's next. Right. So she, um, was like, just, I can help you get a job at Abercrombie. She was working there managing and obviously I had to go through the interview process and everything to make sure that it was the right fit, but she helped connect me with people there to do that. And it, it was a great job. It just wasn't. It wasn't for me. Right. Um, I was just, I was feeling so restless after, you know, I, I lived in Australia for a few months after my freshman year of college, but then Spain was my first experience at Europe and I already got the bug from Australia. And so I felt very restless coming back to home after seeing and feeling how big the world was. I just wanted to explore. Yeah. What took you to Australia? Um, so Amy, um, our good friend, Amy Farrell that we grew up with, she moved back to Australia. So I don't think you know her. I don't. Um, but she, she had to move back to Australia after our freshman year, just a, a change in, in visa status and freshman year college. And so we were really close and my parents let me go back with her for the summer and we got a car and just road tripped from north to south of Australia, went over to Tasmania for a little bit, just had a blast experiencing you know, something different because that was my first out of the country experience other than like a Mexico or something. Right. So, yeah, it was awesome. So not to get too personal, you said that you moved to Spain, but then stayed until you ran out of money. Yeah. <laughs> Where was the money coming? Was that like your parents, that was like their college set aside? No, it was a you, mix. So you... they, as I got low, they ended up helping me, but I worked through college. Um, okay. And I was a hostess. Okay. In college and actually made some really good money. I worked at um, Michael Jordan's Steakhouse 23 in Chapel yeah. Hill. No, I know that um, well. So I was able to just save a lot. My parents were great. They paid for my undergrad. Got it. Um, they always said if we got good grades and could get into a good school, they would help pay for it. So I feel very blessed and lucky they did that. Nice. That allowed me to save and work. But then I did spend more than I personally had and they, they gave me a loan um, to let me, you know, have some extra time over there. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay, so what came after Abercrombie? So after Abercrombie came the itch of just like, what, you know, I, I need to do something. I need to move. Um, and so I wanted to pick, um, I wanted to pick a place where I didn't know anyone, funny enough. I've, I've just always had this thing for adventure and change. And I thought it'd be really cool to just start fresh somewhere and have to kind of make new friends and figure it all out on my own. Um, so I picked New York out of all the cities you know, New York was always intriguing to me. I had only been there once very briefly um, with family and I knew somehow did not know anyone there. And I was like, all right, let's let's give this a shot. Should be an adventure. What's the best city? Uh, yeah, it is. But it's it's for city life. Like it is. for a metropolitan life. Like totally. You can't beat New York. But it takes some time. Like it was a rough entry. Um, it, it's a amazing city but it's not kind when you first get here you know it kind of like chews you up a little bit and then you have to decide if it's going to spit you out or you're going to ride it out until you get settled right um, I was living with someone that I knew from school I got connected with her and um, but the living situation was was brutal we won't say names on that one but it was a brutal just like oh interpersonally the we shared a room and it was like roaches and rats like all this stuff what neighborhood were you in um, Upper West Side. I don't yeah. think of rats 
Well, yeah. I, or, well, I mean, you think of rats when you think of New York sometimes, but yeah. you think of them being in the subway. Yes. But like oh, Upper they were West in our Side, apartment. I don't think of roaches. Yeah, I mean, there were roaches. Like I would be in the shower, one fell on my head one time because she was not a cleanly person. I can say this because I'm never going to say her name. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It was a really rude awakening. And then there's just, it was an uncomfortable environment with like, her brother and some other people that would be at the house all the time. And Got so it. I actually moved out in the middle of the night. Um, one of my best friends um, came and helped me just get out because I also didn't know what the reaction would be if I left. Really? So I just took whatever I could and left in the middle of the night. Wow, yeah, that doesn't sound <laughs> healthy. Uh, so New York tries to like, it's like, how bad do you really want to live here? And if you get through it, the other side is beautiful. But there's usually, you know, a little bit of a tough balancing period in the beginning. <laughs> Character building. Exactly. My parents prepared me well with our crazy cars growing up. <laughs> so where did you land job-wise when you first got here? So I actually came up without a job. Um, I was in the final stages of interviewing for a um, role with a, a PR agency. And um, I felt confident. I'm, you know, I felt confident that I, if I didn't get that, I would get something else. Yeah. So I came up and I got temp work. Um, I worked for this like construction company as an assistant, like an office assistant and a real estate company as an assistant, um, just took like temp work and it was only a few months. And then I did get the job at the, it was a big agency called RF Bender, part of Ruder Finn group. And that kicked off my career. Got it. And yeah. that led you to the NBA. Yeah, exactly. So I started in PR. I later shifted to marketing and branding and sponsorships, but my first couple roles when were in PR. So I was, um, at the agency and after about a year agency agency work is tough work it's a great base to have um but it's tough and i growing up in sports always loved it and i spoke spanish and a bilingual role came open at the nba oh, wow and through networking ended up being able to interview there and i actually interviewed both in english and spanish which was terrifying you know because i had spoken fun and after a few drinks with my friends in spain but i had never tried to use it professionally professionally yet. yeah but yeah, amazing job. So that shifted me into sports and I think was a big, a big change for my career. Did the Spanish evolve because of the vernacular and kind of like the jargon used at work? Like, did it you definitely have to like did. keep a dictionary beside yeah, you? Yeah, it was more what? just kind of studying up quickly. So I had actually, um, the, the guy I was seeing in Spain was a basketball player. So that worked out well because oh, I actually funny. did learn some of the language from being around them. But, uh, I just had to study up on sports words and also different. I did, um translation like for Pal Gasol when people would be interviewing him in the beginning his he would do a lot of the interviews in Spanish so I would help with translation things like that so it was also just getting used to any different accents or dialects but that's where learning in Spain had a great base because in, in Sevilla it was very fast and it was a little difficult to learn right. so some of the other versions of the language sounded a little slower and easier to understand which was good but yeah I loved it I knew you'd worked for the NBA but I didn't realize like the the proximity, the closeness to the players that you had. Yeah, very close. In PR, you work super close with them. And then my, my favorite part of it, I worked on this program called Basketball Without Borders, which was a community relations program where players in the summer would go to different countries and help use basketball in the sport to educate, whether it was on HIV awareness, building reading and learning centers, just helping the community through that bridge of and that common language of sport. Nice. So that was my favorite part. So with PR, you, you do get close to the players and you work closely with them. Them, which I think is good because it, you want to help get those good stories out there. There's so many amazing athletes and great guys in the NBA, but a lot of times those stories get overshadowed. Right. So it was it was nice to be able to work with them closely and then be able to help tell those positive stories of what was going on behind the scenes. So then you, okay, so after the NBA, was that when you moved to Los Angeles? No, NBA, then I started working um, with a friend of mine in entertainment and that moved me to L.A., Okay. Um, we worked together a little bit here in New York and then there was a good opportunity in LA. Right. So moved out there and it's a big change. LA is very different than New York. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, not only did you drive. No, I didn't drive. Jamie oh, you drove. Never, you never drove in no. LA? No. Oh my gosh. I don't even like to drive home from here. I'm a flyer. Like. Well, sure. Yeah, yeah. Why didn't Because you don't have a car here. No, I got a car when I went out there. Yeah. Wow. Okay. My my bold brother drove all the way from North Carolina, which blows my mind. Yeah. Big Blue. What was the name? I'll have to reference the old 
I'm pretty sure Big Bet- Blue, definitely Big Betty something Blue, because Big something. He I clearly wasn't he traumatized knew. by the cars we grew up in because he got one very <laughs> similar to it when we were grown ups. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then you're in Los Angeles. Okay, yeah. but you were working in entertainment. You could call it Hollywood, I guess. Yeah. What's one thing you learned working in that environment that you still use today? Um, you know, it was a tough environment. There, there's a lot of um, bleeding between personal and professional in entertainment and a lot of, um, very cutthroat, you know, I felt like what I watched on Entourage and stuff like that was, was very real, which I didn't realize. So I think it was great just in terms of making sure I kept my North star while I navigated it. You know, I think, um, big fast paced industries in general, it's very easy to lose yourself in them. And when there's also kind of glitz and glam and fun and stuff, you can also lose yourself a bit. So I think the best lesson I learned was to enjoy that moment, to learn from the work, to, to continue because it's still I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do so continue to use what I was learning to figure out what I want to do but make sure I stayed centered in myself right now is that after that you moved back to Spain after that no after that I went to grad school so that was like a perfect um out because I didn't know what I wanted to do next but I didn't feel like entertainment was necessarily the right industry for me I didn't have the passion for it personally, like a lot of people do. And I think in, in those heavy industries, like with sports, I did. So that the hard hours, all of that makes sense. But I didn't have that same passion for the entertainment space. So I went back to school at Loyola Marymount. Um, they had an, a really amazing international program. So I did an MBA in international business and marketing. And I did an international thesis that let me travel to like five different countries for a couple weeks each. And then I studied abroad in France and moved to Paris for an extra month after that. So it was a cool kind of travel has always been a way for me to remind myself how big the world is and kind of recenter and wake up from the autopilot we get on. Yeah. So the schooling was really interesting, but it was also just a perfect reset. Got it. So... Do you speak French fluently too? Um, I'm working on it. I'm, I'm taking lessons in French now, but I do not speak it fluently. No, okay. I can't claim that. But I will soon. I was actually after the pandemic or right before the pandemic, excuse me, I was supposed to move to France to finish up studying on the language and then it got stopped. So I'm close. I restart lessons next week. I was going to say, can about. you take that online instead? You can. I mean, learning Spanish, I realized the power of immersion. So I've been taking classes for a while in French, but every... So, um, the two summers before the pandemic, I went over to France for two weeks and Southern France and did immersion classes for two weeks, just kind of take a, a life break and do something I loved. Where did you go? I, um, I went to Nice and Cannes oh, in Southern France. So yeah. I love the Mediterranean. Um, but it's always like right at that end of the two weeks when you're kind of immersed in stuff, you feel ready and then you come back and you snap back. So I, I think I need some time in a country. Right. To let it sink in. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then you're also getting like real world type of conversations. Yeah, exactly. Not and this like fabricated book. And the big thing is thinking in it, right? Speaking is, is secondary to thinking in it. Right. So as soon as you can get to the place where you're thinking, which happens when the street signs are there, you hear conversations in the background, you're, you're fully immersed in it. Your brain naturally starts to tap into it more. Um, so when you're just studying, it's a little more like... I don't know. It's just not as natural process. Right, right. Yeah. It's more linear, I think, yeah, of a way a of thinking way as, a, as, a, as opposed to like a cobweb. Yeah. Where it's just going everywhere. Yeah. What is, um, what was the next step then? Then it's iHeart? Um, no, I had lots of steps. That's for sure. <laughs> well, this is part of the reason I want to talk to you. I know. I love it. It's so fascinating to me, like how you've jumped around and then, I mean, physically, I mean, yeah. among countries, you know what I mean? Yeah, quite a bit. I always love change. Um, I just find change really interesting. Um, so that's kind of been part of my career path as well, but also served me well, um, because I think you take something different, each country, or excuse me, each country, true, but each company, you learn something different that you can take with you. Right. Um, so I started working with a company called Lead Dog Marketing Agency. Mm-hmm. At the time, they, um, they ended up merging with uh, CSM Sport, I believe. But I started working with them while I was in grad school, doing events and helping out um, on site at things like they handled all the WWE stuff, oh, things funny. like that. So yeah. built a relationship with them while I was in LA and then they ended up hiring me full time in New York after I graduated. Okay. So that's what brought, so you that back. brought me back to New York. And then that started, I went from lead dog to working in soccer with soccer United marketing, which was MLS us soccer and the Mexican national team. Sweet. Um, I was a director there 
working on their sponsorships with like Adidas and Audi and Johnson and Johnson. So for those roles, were you traveling to Oregon to meet with Adidas or yes. like what? Oh, yeah. Cool. With, um, with that role, I was traveling quite a bit. Um, mostly Adidas was the biggest partner cause they were also the kit partner, they call it. So they did all the jerseys and everything for MLS. Right. So with running that program, um, I spent a decent amount of time, not a ton, but yeah, we would do meetings out there and the guys would come to New York and then we would, you know, meet up at like all-star and, and games and stuff. So did you, were you instrumental in Adidas partnering or were they already a partner? They were already a partner. Okay. Partner. I went through a renewal. Um, with them, which was, you know, it's an intense renewal because of how integrated they are as a partner. They're not just a marketing partner. They, aside from the kits and, um, product side, they also are just so influential and amazing in terms of impacting the sport of soccer in our country and globally. And so, you know, they would do, um, all of these actual player development programs and everything. So the negotiations around the partnership was much heavier than we'll give you this for these types of brand rights or, you know, sponsorship, um, assets. So it was really interesting. I, I loved it. And I love that team. I'm a huge fan of the brand in general. Yeah. Okay. So then you take it from there because we're basically just going through your resume. At this <laughs> I, know, point. I know. Well then, um, so from there I got my first VP job, which was exciting. Um, you know, I didn't feel ready for it. Like I don't think anyone ever does. It felt strange to even interview for a, a VP job. Cause I don't think you ever feel grown up enough for one, but I started working with, um, the U S polo association. So there, um, I had no idea. Yeah. Okay. So that took me to West Palm beach for, I was there for 18 months. Makes sense. Um, and it was, it was amazing. It was a global role. So a lot of travel, like I went to polo tournaments in Dubai cause we were help, helping to sponsor it and just like some really fun, interesting stuff and a different version of sport than I had ever worked in. Cause I worked in basketball and soccer before that. Right. Um, so that was great. Very, very cool cool role. I was the VP of global marketing and then I loved it, but the, but I missed New York. Um, it was tough living in Florida, in Florida for me. Um, just missed the city and everything. So I started interviewing and I got a job with iHeart, um, iHeart media. So I was the VP of event marketing and sponsorship, sponsorship, (laughs) excuse me, solutions there. So doing the event marketing and branding and storytelling and sponsorship packaging for all of the big event platforms and programs like Jingle Ball and the iHeartRadio Music Awards and oh, wow. all of those. Like, so like what, what, what do you do for a music awards thing? Um, so the big focus was around creating packages to allow sponsors to buy into the program and platform. Okay. So, you know, it would either be on air or you would create programs and packages to, um, have digital promotion leading up to it, you know, so a partner would come on and you would just help push each other's brands through that relationship. And also it gives the, um, the audience and the attendees a great way to engage with brands you know, differently in ways they hadn't in the past. So, so. were you the one ideating these things or mm-hmm. were you just pitching them? Ideating. So, so you're we, doing both. Yeah. No, my, I didn't do much pitching. Sometimes I would go to meetings to help support um, the story. Okay. But we created the sales materials and the strategy and then handed it to the sales team and they sold it. So it was really interesting. I love the puzzle of just kind of putting all of these pieces together to create a package and to, right. to support like how brands can live together and, right. and help each other. So most of that language is most like cost benefit basically. Yeah. Right? Yes. Cost Why benefit. this is important for you to do this. Exactly. Cost benefit and impact. I would say some of it gets a little intangible because it, you can measure to a certain extent. Um, but I think just the awareness and the engagement is sometimes a little bit challenging to measure, but has a huge impact on, sure. um, on audience and, and consumer relationships. Right. So I think it's a combination. What made you leave or was it just Amazon found you or what happened? Yeah, I ended up, um, getting in touch with Amazon through an old colleague. They, they had reached out to me and said, you know, there's a, a role coming open that I think would be a really great fit. And I wasn't planning on leaving iHeart at that time. Um, but it's hard to not be curious about something like an Amazon. Right. And so actually the first role, it ended up being a little bit too junior. Um, the one that my friend reached out about. So I started the interview process and realized it wasn't the right fit. And then they reached back out a few weeks, maybe, um, you know, maybe a month later with another role. Okay, I got to stop you there because like, (laughs) I can't really say that I've ever met somebody say like, uh, this is beneath me. (laughs) 
so <laughs> beneath me is not good language. No, well, what, uh, right, right. But I'm saying like my skill set exceeds this. Yeah, expectation. I mean, it did. I think there's a point in your career where you, you become rightfully confident. You know, I know the value that I bring to organizations or did now that I work for myself that I bring to myself. But well, um, still fair. I felt yeah, I felt confident in where I was in my career. And a lot of times, you know, organizations will want you to interview or take a role down a little bit because they're getting a lot more value. Right. But I knew where I was and what I was ready for. And I was ready for a head of global events role like I ended up taking. I wasn't ready to be on a team of a head of a global events, if that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. So what what did you say to them? Like, were you like, this isn't for me because I think I need more of a challenge? Well, or? no, I was just very honest. I said, I, you know, I don't think the experience or responsibilities match up with where I am in my career. Um, Interesting. Which was true, you know. And then they came back and were like, yeah, we kind mm -hmm. of agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. She was like, okay, I understand. I appreciate the honesty. You know, we'll keep you in mind if something else comes open. And then something else came open and they reached back out and asked me to interview. It's a good moral of a story. Like you, you have to stand up for yourself. Okay. And also what, what year was this? Because Amazon has taken off like a rocket. They have. And it's they been... They were taking off when I was there. Um, so that would have been, I'm so bad with years and the pandemic did not help that. Yeah, that would just have been, add a year is what I normally Right, do. almost two. Yeah. <laughs> um, it would have been 2018, like 2017 to 2008. Let's see, I, I left in November of 2019 and I was there for a year and a half. So it would have okay, been so like 2017. March, April. Yeah, somewhere around there. Don't hold me to the dates, but yeah, 2017-ish. So yeah, the pace of growth was extremely fast while I was there. Um, it was, I mean, it is always, you can't not admire the ability of that company to see ahead, to plan ahead. Like well, it, it's insane. They also seem incredibly nimble for how huge they are. They are. Is I, that a byproduct of just having resources so you can just um, throw enough shit against the wall? Yes or and no. To be honest, I think it's a byproduct of the people. They do a really good job hiring people that are very analytical and logical and intelligent, but can also handle change, right. which is a challenging combination to find. It's what I would try to hire for on my team. Yeah, you thrive too. in that environment. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I do, honestly, yeah, it fit extremely well for me. I found it exciting and interesting. Um, even the interview process is, is extremely challenging. The, the last part of the, the interview process, you're in all day interviews back to back. They just keep sending people in. So you could tell what you were walking into and I, it felt like such an interesting challenge. Um, so I do, I think they can change and keep up the way they do because they're very forward thinking and strategy and planning is a part of everything you do every day. But you also know you're working in an industry that could change at the drop of a dime. Right. So you're always planning, but you're always changing. And it's this really challenging, cool dynamic that I have not seen another company do as well as Amazon does. Um, so I think that's a huge part of their success. Got it. Yeah. So, well, it's interesting because you were there for a year and a half and then you left just pre-pandemic. I did. I and they've been no so instrumental, obviously, in the pandemic with package deliveries and yeah. things like that. But like, so what were you doing? Like, what was your core kind of set of responsibilities. Yeah. There. So I was head of global events for Amazon advertising. So my role was really helping again to enable the sales teams and enable uh, global brand messaging through integrated marketing strategies. So using events and sponsorships and integrated marketing platforms to get products in people's hands, allow the sales teams to connect with our customers and make sure that we were pushing the same global brand messaging everywhere. It's interesting because I don't think of Amazon having salespeople. Yeah. Because there's a lot of them. it's just a platform and it's like whatever you want, you just buy it. It is right? true. Well, and there are different divisions, right? So if you think on the advertising side, which now I'm assuming they're the biggest advertiser, they were on their way, digital advertiser, they were on their way when I was there. Um, all of those advertising products that you see when you're buying something on the site, they all need to be sold. Now, a lot of that happens organically because it's such a great and powerful platform and the returns are there, right. but the sales teams work extremely hard to go out there and make those connections and get the right brands. Cause Amazon also isn't just, if you buy this, you can have it. They're very thoughtful with who they allow to market with them because they don't want any ads or any sort of marketing to take away from the consumer experience. Mm -hmm. Their customer is priority hands down. So they're very careful with, with how they work with brands, which I really respected also. What changes did you see in that 
company from start to finish. I know it was only 18 months or so. 18 but months is like dog years there, though, to be honest. Really? <laughs> Not in a bad way, but just because of how no. fast it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, teams just, just growing tremendously. Um, expansion in different areas of the of the business, like you as it's kind of like this living being where, you know, different parts are growing and, and getting smaller and just adapting as the industry is changing. There was a huge focus on marketing and branding while I was there because we were starting to see like, you know, Amazon as a brand and, and the products and everything worked amazingly, but we wanted people to get to know the company more and have that brand exposure and experience. So there was a big push around just, um, yeah, marketing and branding and everything. Did you ever meet Bezos? I did not meet Bezos. I saw him speak a few times. He always spoke at our like uh, company meetings and everything. Right. But I did not meet with him. I've worked with people um, under him or interacted with them, but it was very hierarchical. I was in New York. Um, so, you know, you just kind of worked with your more direct reports. But Bezos was very involved from everything I heard and knew. Like even when we would do our advanced planning and everything, it would go all the way up to him where he would review our, our global strategies and planning and you know he was very hands-on cared a lot about the company i'm sure still does i'm only saying past tense because i'm not there not because he's yeah (laughs) he doesn't care anymore (laughs) i know um throughout the the lifespan of like giorgio armani for example like mr armani still like oversees designs even for like armani exchange which is like the least expensive of his lines of clothing so it kind of makes me think of that where like run it up the flagpole and the big man will say yay, nay. Right. There's a passion there. And he had his team around him that he really trusted too. But there's, I mean, you think about what he built, however you feel about the company or him. It's insane what he built. And it is insane. Just from a human standpoint, it would be hard to fully distance yourself from something that you've, like that baby that you've turned into. Right. This, This crazy success. Yeah. Right. If you haven't heard episode one of the Standard Age podcast, then let me tell you about my friend, Tim Jackson. As owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, Tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available. I'm talking about Gronfeld, Habring, Kudoki, Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job. And like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O or visit them at Contonement.co and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get back to the show. All right, so walk us through how one goes from working for a behemoth (laughs) to I want to do my own thing. Yeah, so it actually started, I mean, they they parallel path. Um, So about five years ago, and I've always had this sort of nudge inside of me, I call it my North Star, that I remember when I was working in an agency in my mid to late 20s, I was I was at the office super late at night and I just had this thought of like, okay, when I look back from my deathbed, are these moments what I'm going to be, I'm going to be thankful this is how I spent my time. Mm. You know, it was just this little like tapping on me of like, is this, 
is this really what you want life to be? Is this really what's important? And that even started when I was younger. You know, my dad was gone so much with coaching, which was amazing, but I felt that absence. And, you know, you'd have these thoughts of like, is this really more important than him being here for a birthday or something like that, you know? So that voice followed me for a long time and it got louder and louder and it started to create a lot of conflict between my current career and these feelings that I had of like wanting freedom and wanting to live a certain way that was more by my values. And so about five years ago, um, maybe six, again, I'm confused on time, um, I, I started to build a residential real estate business that I still have now and I'm building um, where I do single property homes, rent them out and manage it as a way to start to create some stability financial, financially to allow myself to step away if I wanted to. Right. And then I started investing in crypto as another means of additional financial stability. So I was setting up these things to give myself the option to do something other than corporate, but I wasn't there yet. So I was still also parallel pathing and building a strong career in corporate. Right. But once I knew that I wanted to move out of it and I had set these things in motion, like when you're, when your true self makes a decision, when it's coming from that place of like gut and intuition, it's so hard to wait. You know, like I, I had built a plan that would be about five to seven years and that just started to feel like a life sentence. Um, so I had always been curious about coaching from what my dad did to just seeing the impact of awareness and mindset on life. Right. So I got my coaching certification um, from IPEC, one of the top schools, so that if I ever wanted to work in-house with an Amazon or Google, I could. And it sort of naturally turned into getting clients while I was with Amazon. What is that certification process? How much does something like that cost? Um, the cost, I mean, I don't want to date them. I don't know if it changes. Mine was around 10000 I think. Okay. 10 to 12, okay. something like that. If you're going to do it, like I wanted to do it with one of the best schools. Um, because I do think it's important. I work now much, much heavier and and deeper inner work and intuition based work, but those tools and that base of understanding the concept of, of awareness work and coaching, I think is, is important to have. How long does it take? Um, it took about a year. Okay. Is that like self paced or? It's a mix. You have three modules, so it's on their pace. A lot of it is remote, and then you come in person for these three modules that are three days really intense in person. Wow. Um, where a lot of the work, I didn't realize this, which it was. I think a lot of us had this epiphany together. You're thinking, oh, I'm going to learn about this so that I can do it to other people. Well, you move through all of it while you're learning about right. it. You know, yeah. there's a ton of self-reflection and self-work. Oh, I'm sure so, it would be like majoring in psychology. Oh, it's crazy. It's really, really intense and beautiful work. So instead of just, I pictured, because I've obviously done college and grad school, you do learn, but you are, you're experiencing much more than you learn. Um, so it's intense work. It's, it's very heavy at times. Right. No, I, I can only imagine. Yeah. What, um, okay, so we kind of glazed over this. Uh, so like, uh-oh. what is your business? Yeah, so my business, I'm a, a transformational teacher and guide. Um, coaching is something that I see more as a tool than a profession. Mm-hmm. And that's not a knock on anyone that uses it as a sole profession. But I think there are a lot of great tools in it. I think um, teaching and guiding it comes into play a lot more with the deeper transformational work that I do. So for example, coaching a lot of times can live a little more in your head. Um, an example I like to give is, you know, we play a lot with language and the coaching space as a tool. So if you hear someone using the word need a lot, you want them to change that to want because need signifies that you're needing something external to be okay, that there's this like force there. Right. Where want is like a choice, an action that you're choosing to do. So in the coaching space, what you would do is you would have clients, every time they say the word need, create awareness around that and have them change it to the word want. So well, it's like restructuring the neural pathway to the path of least resistance. Exactly. But think about exactly what you're saying. That's all playing in the headspace yeah. and that's all reprogramming. And anytime you're using your head to fix your head, you're making your head stronger. And so in transformational work, what I would do is I would go to the source, get very curious and turn the inquiry inside and figure out what is driving the feeling that need is the right word for you. Mm. Where is that coming from? And you find that source of what's making you want to use that language. And when you find that source and you solve that source, you automatically want to use want and not need. So there's a very big difference between the two. And I moved from the coaching work into my own deep inner work. I moved through a big transformation and awakening. And I fell in love with the power and impact of that work much more so than playing in the headspace. Right, right. So who's the target market? Like who's, who's your client? Yeah, I love it. I mean, my client is me, which, you know, a lot of times people joke about, but it it happens a lot because you, um, you're drawn to, 
you what you experienced. Um, so I work with other high performers, high performers, excuse me, helping them refine internal balance and freedom. Um, and so the work basically takes you out of your head, away from your ego self, because especially, I mean, in everywhere in society, but especially with high performers, your head and ego self get so strong and powerful. They just start to, to numb and dull that voice inside of you and they pull you further and further away from your true self. Mm. So my work takes you on a, um, a journey. I have a four phase method I developed that sheds the control of the ego self layer by layer and takes you back to your true self. And that's your natural balance and freedom. And all of a sudden you feel this, this crazy sense of just being who you are and being free that you can't get externally. Right, right. So what does something like this cost somebody or like, how do they, you know, is there like a consult, like a brief, like almost like a physician, right? Like, <laughs> let's bring you in for a cons consultation. Yeah, and there definitely is. And the pricing varies. Um, you know, I have a, my, my coaching packages I do th by three months. I mm -hmm. don't do a year at a time or anything like that because I think it's important for both of us to re-choose to commit after every three months. Um, that's cool. Yeah, I think it's important. I also freedom. I know my core values now that I'm back to my true self and freedom is one of mine. So I want to show up in the right way for my clients too, and, and recommit and, you know, be there consciously for them. Um, so I do do a consultation um, in line with that. I think it's really important that we both feel there's a fit. It's a, it's a personal relationship, you know, it's right. obviously a professional dynamic, but you move through some very um, intimate personal things together. And I think it's important that you connect um, energy wise and just overall. And also in terms of where clients are, a lot of times I'll have people come to me and I might recommend a book that they read first or something to sort of deepen that awareness before they move into the work. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, I have this four phase method that has, four specific phases, but within that it's so different. And so is the starting point of just kind of feeling out where someone is and what they're ready for. What's the book? Oh no, the books would vary. Oh, like okay. Yeah, yeah. So you have like a series Sorry. or like yeah. a collection. No, just if, if someone comes to me and they, you know, they're ready for this work and whatnot, but I might feel that there's some, some base work that needs to be done before they really are ready for the deeper transformational work. There might be a book I'd recommend to say, why don't you read this first and let me know how it resonates and come back or give them an activity like do a, do a video journal for me every night for two weeks and let me hear where you are and what's going on. What is that? Like it's just somebody getting on camera to talk about yeah, themselves? Yeah, it's my, it's my favorite. My, um, I had a transformational teacher that moved me through my process and I'm not a big journal writer. Um, I, I can, but I much prefer speaking. And there's also something really beautiful about seeing your, seeing yourself as a human, um, which might sound funny, but we often just kind of forget we're there and that we need the same love and compassion and unconditional support that other people do because we're living inside of ourselves and can't see ourselves that way. Right. So a video journal, instead of writing things down, um, what a lot of times I'll have clients do is before they go to bed, get on your iPhone, do a video journal for a couple minutes and just tell me what you felt today, what emotions came up, pulling them out of their head into their body and how they experienced the day through through feelings and emotions. And it's really interesting, the awareness that starts to create because it brings you back into your body and back into your true self and not into, well, I got in this argument with so-and-so, and but how did that make you feel? That's a, an important step. And then I have them watch it before they send it to me. So they see themselves and they experience the emotion they're experiencing. It can be very powerful in terms of an awareness tool. This doesn't seem natural, obviously. So the <laughs> only reason way? why I'm like almost <laughs> looking through you up. right now yeah. is that I'm just like, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes <laughs> of said client, right? Where I'm like, you want me to do what? Yeah. Like, how does that, how do people receive that task? Well, my, my favorite thing to respond with that is whenever you feel resistance or you feel strongly that something is, is strained. <laughs> yeah, that is an arrow pointing to exactly what you need to do. Because resistance very rarely comes from our true self, unless it's trying to keep us safe in a healthy way. Right. Almost every other form of resistance, I'd like to say every other, but I don't I don't agree with speaking in absolutes. Um, right. Comes from our head. And our head will have resistance against things that create a lack of control for the head and ego self. Mm. So that process of recording yourself, of doing a journaling activity, of focusing on how you're feeling and what's going on inside versus what's going on in your head removes you from your head and your ego self, 
which lives in your head can't control you. So anything that does that, it will have resistance. It will tell you it's dumb. It's silly. It doesn't make sense. It's a waste of time. It uses all of these tricks to try to keep you away from that work so that it can maintain control. So the way you're reacting is a perfect example of your head showing up and trying to protect you quote unquote from this work, which is really just protecting itself so it can control. Right. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. It is. I love it. It's so fascinating. Um, but yeah, cause I'm just trying to put myself in that person's shoes of being like, okay, I'm going to pay you and you want me to do this leading up to this. Mm-hmm. And I like, as somebody who's like not even good at doing like Instagram live because I'm mm-hmm. too like, I don't, I don't know like I, why I shouldn't do it. Should I do it? I don't know. But like, yeah. again, my head's getting in the way. I should just freaking do it. Right. But, well, and it depends. That's different, right? That's for an audience. The work that I do with my clients is only for them. It's for them, yeah. And it's for me so that I can experience them and help guide them. But it's it's very personal between us. And the so, asking someone to do something like that is also about their level of commitment. Because this isn't this work is not for the faint of heart. It, it gets challenging. What's on the other side of it is the most intense reward you could ever experience. Well, and that's where I was going with this because, like you said, like that's for an audience. And I guess if people weren't inclined to trying something new like this, they mm-hmm. probably wouldn't be approaching you anyway. Yeah, very, very true. And that's what I mean about meeting with them first and talking with them. The The people that are drawn to me, it's kind of where I was when I started. So I did my coaching certification and everything, but still and beautiful work. I'm not knocking it all, but still very head heavy. Um, but I felt this, this curiosity to work with, with the, the teacher I work with, but I did not even know what transformational work was. I didn't know what spirituality meant outside of using it in context of organized religion. Right. But I still really wanted to do it. And that wanting was coming from my true self. It was kind of leading me through intuition, even though my head didn't understand it. And that's the place where I'll be meeting my clients also. They'll already have that twinge. So how do you toe that line between like, this is like really effective and just woo woo? Yeah. Well, there's definitely no woo woo. (laughs) It's funny. And and you'll know when you see yourself on camera. (laughs) Yeah. Right. You know, it's, um, our heads and ego selves just get so strong. It, it creates this narrative of woo woo again to protect us from, from moving out of it. Mm. Um, this work is just about the way I do the work. I don't use, um, any sort of external medicines or anything. I think they're great in the field, but my medicine was turning my focus inward, doing self inquiry and giving myself space because just like when we cut our arm, and our body heals it, our consciousness knows how to heal us internally. It mm. knows how to move through this process of rebalancing and healing naturally, but we never give it enough space to do it. And so as soon as you start doing this work and you commit to it and you give space and do the self-inquiry, you feel the changes, you feel there's no woo-woo. It's very dramatic. And my work does have a process where it takes you back to your true self, but every step of the journey, awareness is happening and you feel a difference. You feel better. It isn't like there's some end goal you're chasing. Right. That naturally happens. But every month I felt like a different person. The insights you have and the way it brings you back to center and and creates this balance is just really beautiful. So the woo-woo goes out the door very quickly right. when when you realize your head's just trying to scare you away. Oh, that's so sick. <laughs> it's really interesting stuff. You just came back from Colorado. I did, yeah. I only witnessed through Instagram slightly, but <laughs> yeah. was it like a retreat? Like, tell me kind about your of. trip. So, um, the summit organization, it's a community I've been involved with for, um, started with them about a year before the pandemic. It's an amazing community. They just bring together, you know, people from different industries, but, um, entrepreneurs, creatives, executives, but also this, this balance of kind of high performance and mindfulness. That's super interesting. Hmm. So they do events in person. They hadn't for a while because of the pandemic. Sure. Um, they did one at this really amazing retreat called um, the Bayul retreat in um, in Colorado it's about an hour outside of Aspen and basalt and it was gorgeous you disconnect and they have cool speakers like they had um, Jeff Orlowski who um, is the creator of social dilemma okay that, um, documentary on Netflix about yep. social media impact Watch that yeah so there's a lot of really cool speaking sessions and fun activities just community and connection. Um, yeah, I just got back from that. It was amazing. What did he have to say? Was it more summarizing the documentary or was it something um, completely different? It was a mix. So he spoke twice and then it's cool because the events are small. So we all just all, like went horseback riding together. You know, you all just kind of hang out too. It's a, it's a close community. Cool. Um, 
but yeah, he just spoke about the making of it, the storytelling, how when you have something that powerful, how do you actually bring that story to light? How do you, you know, create impact from it? Because there's one thing knowing something's going on, but trying to deliver that in, in the extremely beautiful and talented way he does is not an easy thing. Right. So he walked through the process of that. And um, he also has other documentaries that are really powerful on um, climate change and the environment. So yeah, it was just wonderful to to listen to him speak and hear someone that talented explain kind of how his artful process works. That's cool. So with the summit, is it capped at a certain number of people? Is it only one time a year? Like, yeah, how do, do you even few. get into there? Because, like, I would imagine it sells out if it's capped, right? So, yeah, they do a few. I mean, it depends. I think they're refining, like, everyone refiguring out what the event structure is right now because we're mm-hmm. still, you know, right. in the pandemic. So, this is one of their smaller events. It was around 50 to 60 people. Um, but they do huge ones. Like, they took over downtown LA. Right before the pandemic, thousands and thousands of people. And then they did one that I went to in Powder Mountain that was around 150, 200. So it varies. I think they're figuring out their new event model. Um, But yeah, if they have a set number, if they would get up to that, it would be sold out, which has definitely happened in the past. Right. Yeah. What, um, as we're kind of wrapping up, I guess, Mm -hmm. what what is a piece of advice on the real estate front that you would give people? Um, I would say only enter a market you know really well. So for example, I live in New York. My rental properties are in North Carolina. I think it's it's more important to know the market and have strong support somewhere and understand what your investment is going to do, both short and long term, than do it where you are. I think a lot of times people are very quick to be like, I need to be around it, which is much easier. Don't get me wrong. But once I got my business up and running, I created relationships with vendors down there that I said, like, here's what I'm building. Can you be my go to if I need an electrician or a plumber? So you can create these relationships that almost are an extension of your team. But go where you know. One of my best friends, Leslie Chanel, is an amazing, you know, one of the top real estate agents in the area down there. And so I work with her and I trust her. I grew up there. I know the appreciation. Um, so yeah, just be careful about where you do it right? so that, you know, both short and long-term opportunity and impact. Sure. No, that's sound advice. Um, lastly, mom's coming into town. Uh, you already mentioned wait. it. Yes. What, what do we got planned for the weekend? You know, what is so beautiful about our relationship? We have absolutely nothing planned. Oh, awesome. I love it. Like our family time has been this way since we were little. We didn't really do big presents for holidays. It was always about like the present is the time together. Yeah. And it's the same with her trip here. We just, I mean, half the time we'll probably sit on this couch and watch Hallmark movies. You really? Know? Yeah. So we'll do some stuff. Um, you know, there's some things I want to show her because it's been a little bit since she's been up. But no, it's just... Yeah, absolutely nothing on the books. Just huge hugs and and sitting together and enjoying each other. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much. It's always great to see you. It is. I I could honestly, this could be five hours. Like, <laughs> I have could, to because I don't even things. get to ask you questions. We what could, do we you have? What do you have for me? Shoot. <laughs> well, I'm just curious, like where you are and stuff with with the company with standard age, like what big stuff is coming. Cause the pandemic's affected everyone, even if the business wasn't directly impacted. So what's on the horizon for you? Yeah. I mean, I think growing the assortment is on the horizon. Mm-hmm. I think, um, entering the mode of marketing, um, I have yet to advertise. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a very slow mover when it comes to these things. Cause they're big decisions and they're like, big. I don't take money lightly. Mm -hmm. So I move honestly at a snail's pace. And I wonder if, frankly, if if it's to a fault. Um, It can be another area where the head gets really involved. Yeah. And you want your head involved in business decisions, but a lot of times intuition can be a better route. Well, that's just it. And so I spent years doing a bunch of logo merchandise, which is stuff that like I never... I, I've, I've said this before on the podcast where I got in a mode of sort of chasing demand like, oh, you guys like the logo? Well, let me just produce a bunch of logo stuff. Mm-hmm. And then found that I wasn't really thrilled with, I don't know, like just the assortment. Like me, myself, like I don't really wear logo stuff unless yeah. it's like my hat. I right? love your logo, yeah. And so I that's when the Avanti was honestly, these were the things that like I wanted to do from the onset, Mm -hmm. like stuff that I've designed, things that I wanted to do. Now, granted, does this look 
drastically different from another pocket tee? No, but the details but the quality. Are, and the quality yeah. are, are where that lies. And like, yes, there are other t-shirts that are made in the U.S., but do they have this neck trim? Do they have these seams? Is it made from North Carolina grown cotton? Is it made mm. in L.A.? You know, all those things combined, I couldn't find it. Either yeah. they were made elsewhere or they were dyed in India and spun in Mexico or vice versa. And the carbon footprint was all over the planet. Mm. And so, again, it was like everything culminating into one item that had to meet a certain checklist. I want to keep that checklist in mind for all my future products. I so as I'm growing the assortment, as I'm trying to reach an audience, because it doesn't matter how good your products are if no one knows about them. Right. And I, I very much understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the direction that I'm heading in. So. I love it. And everything you're saying about the product, I mean, it's like it, it's another version of marketing where you want people to experience something almost subconsciously. So someone totally. who puts on your shirt might not know all of the details you said, but they'll feel them. They'll just know they really like it. And, and that's the reason what's they wonderful like it is about all the fashion. thought that's gone into it. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, honestly, I interviewed and he's becoming a, a good friend is, is Adrian Barker. He's based in, in London or excuse me. He's now in Scotland. Um, and he'll say, he's like, dude, I don't know what's in this t-shirt, but it but makes me it. sit up straight. Yeah. You know, things like it's that. Amazing. So there is like this subconscious Sign of physical this beautiful element. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, that's his experience and it, it's subjective, right? Yeah. But to your point, that can happen. The quality, yeah. The quality, people don't always know why they're impacted by something, but they're impacted. And it's those choices and that thoughtfulness you're putting behind the product that's going right. to do that. Right. And look, you have someone, I'm always happy to tap into my past life to help out friends if you ever need a 100%. second marketing or branding ear. <laughs> oh, totally. You know, and and I often don't keep that on the forefront, meaning yeah. asking for help. Yeah. So It's um, tough for all of us, yeah. Yeah. So it's I appreciate normal. you saying that. Um, Ashley, this is awesome. So awesome. Um, I'm going to hit stop so we can chat some more. Sounds good. Okay, cool. Thank you so much, Russ. Yep, best of luck. Thank you. Excited for you. Thanks again, Ashley, for taking the time. I truly value our friendship and thoroughly enjoyed our time this last trip I had in New York City. And of course, thanks to her brother, Jensen, and Super Beautiful for the theme track for this podcast. As always, thank you to Clear Audio for the headphones as well. And to all of you for listening. I'll be back with another conversation in two weeks. Take care.